From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with one of my co-hosts, Everett Ratliff. Hey Aaron, Max is uh, off this week and I am speaking to you from a very echoey room in Sarasota, Florida. Don't dox yourself that way. The, the people <laughs> hunted you down and found you once and you're making it easy on them. Um, I, on this week, talked to Craig Maud, who was on the show previously, many years ago. Uh, and since then... He has been taking lots of walks, very long walks, mostly all over Japan. He runs a uh, newsletter and membership program where he walks and talks to people about these walks. And he is publishing a book that's about those experiences. It's called Things Become Other Things. Uh, I really enjoy his writing. I find it takes me to a, a very different place in my own brain. Uh, it's also, I think, a kind of unusual life pursuit to just uh, go really headlong into a topic like this and figure out how to make it a part of your life, part of your writing life, figure out how to make money doing it, figure out how to publish things yourself, all things that are discussed in this interview. It sounds like a very contemplative interview. It is. It it, it was uh, contemplative and uh, also um, kind of made me uh, want to get off the internet and uh, go for a walk myself. Uh, the show is brought to you in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make it. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Aaron with Craig Maud. Hello, and welcome back to the program, Craig Mott. Hey, thanks for having me back. I, You have a uh, book coming out. Um, I'm just going to say the title now because I'm going to mangle it if I like keep it in my brain memory bank for more than five minutes. Things Become Other Things, uh, which is a bit of a culmination of what I consider the project you've been on since you were last on this show, um, which was uh, now more than five years ago, which is that you've been running this membership program newsletter uh, or actually to be fully transparent, multiple membership program newsletters, um, which are largely about 
a fairly unusual practice that you've embraced in your life, which is going on uh, really long walks. So um, thankfully, you're completely alone on this corner. Uh, no one else has asked to come on the podcast and talk about walking. Um, so this is a, a totally uh, original uh, topic uh, to take on today. Are you, are you being sarcastic? No, no, no. I'm, I'm oh, quite really? serious. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, um, I talk to various people on this show who approach life and being a writer in various ways and what they want to write about. And uh, this seems to be like the sort of unifying thread of your writing life is walking and then writing about walking and the various <laughs> things that come up when you walk. So I guess maybe a place to start is like, how did you get going as a pro level walker? What, what, what path led you here? Uh, I mean, yeah, since the last time I was on the show, which was April, 2018, I think, um, I mean, I was trying to think back on what I was doing then, and it's so different than where I am now. I'm like so, it's kind of funny how what, where you can go in five years, but I'm so grateful to be doing what I'm doing now uh, versus kind of what I was doing then. The walking stuff really started around like 2012, 2013. Just a, kind of a mentor friend of mine, this guy, John McBride, he lived in Japan for you know, since he was like 16, 17, he got a scholarship, a government scholarship. He went to university here. He ended up launching Sky TV, the satellite network. He was the CEO of it here. He, did, he had this kind of like incredible, almost like Forrest Gumpian life. And he had been a really big walker. And um, he started doing the, the Big Japan Walks because he was interested in the literature and the historical remains of what were on these old roads that you could walk in Japan. And so when he was 17, 18, 19, 20, he was doing all of them, you know, and um, a lot of that was connected with the university with his, with the Japanese literature class he was in. And the teacher was just trying to get him into uh, some of these old books that chronicled the walks. And so he was like, oh, okay, let me go follow, you know, Matsuo Basho and let me do his walk. And I mean, these are, he'd be, he'd be offered, you know, a month or two months walking alone, taking notes, taking photos. So he, he kind of planted the seed. And then after he retired, he started doing a lot of the the walks that he had done as a teenager again. And he started inviting me on some of them. And that kind of really burst open what was for me this kind of revelatory moment of, oh my God, there, there's this layering of history and nature and anthropological kind of like villages that you can spend weeks and months walking through. And for me, in that moment, I was looking for a purpose, I think, to be based in Japan because I wasn't working with Japanese companies. I could speak the language. I went to university here. I've been living here for 13 years at that time, and I was trying to figure out, okay, what am, I, what am I doing here? What am I really doing here? And the walks sort of were this light bulb moment of, oh, okay, I can do these walks. They feel really good. I love the physicality of it. And then using my language, I can really kind of go deep pretty quickly with a lot of the people I meet along the way. And so that was, that was really it. And so John kind of unlocked it. 2012, 2013, we started doing walks. And then 2014, 2015, we were doing like, you know, I was walking with him two or three months out of the year. You know, it's like I've spent more time with John than probably any other uh, human as an adult. And so just learning from him and watching him. And then 2016, I started to lead my own walks. And that was when I did the book Koya Bound. And then it just kind of kept going from there. So you moved to Japan kind of college age. And you've been there now, like most of your life. And um, ever since I've known you, I've, I think I've known you for over a decade now. You've been looking for different ways to 
translate that experience into writing because it seems to me like two of like the things that you have chosen to do with your life are live in Japan and write. But it doesn't feel like your ambition has been to be like, I'm going to explain Japan to Americans, which would be more or less the uh, obvious choice if you were, say, going to sell a book or something like that. Tell me how you've sort of thought about that question over time. Like, what is the role of like me writing about Japan for audiences? Um, how how has that evolved for you over time? Yeah, I I didn't write about Japan for most of my time here. You know, yeah. that was never that wasn't something I wanted to to do because it kind of felt too much like a crutch, like mm-hmm. to just to be the explainer, oh, I'm going to demystify things for you. That was never really interesting to me. You know, here's me telling you how it is. I think the older I've gotten and uh, the the more careful I've tried to be about not feeling like Japan owes me anything, because I think that is the angle a lot of people get stuck on. So a lot of foreigners who've chosen to live here, a lot of people who aren't Japanese that have made their lives here and continue to kind of exist in that expat stratum of of you know you're not you're here but you're not really engaged you're kind of only hanging out with other foreigners that you you live in one of the tony fancy neighborhoods of tokyo or something like that and you're kind of at an arm's length from it all and i found a lot of the writers if you look at writers in the 80s and 90s writing about japan there's this kind of distant antagonistic kind of frustrated angry angle that a lot of them just have and i think a big part of it is is this country is never going to accept you as a non-Japanese. You're never going to be embraced and you're never going to feel like, oh, I'm one of them. I'm here. I'm finally here. Like you can in New York or, you know, London, you know, there's so many places in the world where you can integrate in a way that's kind of, you know, part of the fabric there, but here that's never going to happen. And a lot of people, I think, experience that and it, it gets transmuted into frustration, anger, racism. And so I think part of me was, trying to avoid falling into those kind of pitfalls because, you know, in my twenties, I was frustrated. I was angry. I had a lot of issues with alcohol. I was just not living a happy life at all. I wasn't living my best life. And so I think I didn't feel like I had, you know, the wisdom or whatever to demystify a culture. And, and like I said, I was kind of more interested in operating on a international level. So my interests were like technology and art and publishing internationally, not just Japan. So I was kind of always focused on that. But, you know, I went to Silicon Valley. I lived in Palo Alto in 2010, 2011, 2012. And I kind of came back to Japan. I I kept my place in Japan the whole time. And I always had like kind of a a toe here still then. And I finally moved back full time in 2013. And it was when I kind of came back and I started to do these walks with John. And I started to learn a certain kindness and sort of like depth and rigor of research from John that I finally felt maybe I can begin to shine a light on some of the stuff that we were kind of investigating and experiencing. And so that began to give me a little bit of permission. I felt like I was gaining more and more permission. The more rigorous I was with the walking, the more I rigorous I was with sort of language, deeper language acquisition, more polite language, historical kind of reading, reading about the history of the places I was going to, just having this kind of deeper understanding of every everything we were moving through. I felt more and more like, okay, maybe I can shine a light on this in a way that isn't othering this place and it isn't isn't coming at it from this expatriate point of view, which I don't feel like I live or have here. You know, I've I've I now you know kind of with all this hindsight and everything feel very much like an immigrant to this place, um, which I kind of get at in this new book of mine. 
And even if I'm never going to be 100% part of the fabric here, I'm learning so much and I'm getting so much optimism by the way society functions. There's a certain amount of care sort of happening with everyone, with the citizens. You know, there's healthcare, there's social services. You know, you're not allowed to fall that far through the cracks here. There really aren't that many cracks you can fall through, as opposed to kind of where I came from, where it felt like everyone around me was kind of falling through cracks, even though, you know, when you're a kid, you don't, you don't realize that. But with kind of hindsight, I think when I moved to Japan, I felt really comforted by that, by, by, you know, and maybe I could have moved to Scandinavia and felt the same thing. But Japan for me, the thing that really kept me here, I think was the subconscious sense of safety. And so when I do write about Japan, I try to come at it from this perspective of you know equanimity and and trying to meet everyone on the road eye to eye like I would if I was walking through America you know and not saying oh look at this wacky guy who's married his pillow or you know all the all the goofy tropes that people usually do about Japan you know and not leaning on microaggressions because I'm not Japanese which a lot of writers kind of pick up on and then amplify and it becomes the whole you know the whole point of of their book I remember the hanging out with you in Tokyo once and I was kind of euphoric and I was like, you know, maybe, maybe I, I could live here. And you were like, Aaron, the bald are massively discriminated against in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're not, but the, the people definitely have a, there's definitely a, ba- a bald. You tell me that like, thing. yeah, baldy is a big, is a big insult yes. in Japan. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you can't say it on TV. There's like there's like bald related words that are so so like considered discriminatory. You can't say it. <laughs> yeah. So you you brought up the sort of contrast between the town you grew up in in Connecticut um, and like these towns you're basically walking through in Japan right now, which is kind of the like in some ways like the slides the book is flipping between are those like two places kind of the tension between those places and the tension between your memory and sort of the the present day when did you reach this kind of like idea for for the book and like what made you sort of feel ready to be like this is the book i want to write not just about walking but like uh, about myself so um, maybe i should explain the book a little bit what what it's so right, it's, right on it's about, <laughs> it's about it's about a it's about a basically a 30 day walk through the key peninsula and the key peninsula is where the kamano kodo is that's where john first brought me where we first started doing those walks and i've gone back there and i've walked for the last decade thousands of kilometers of the peninsula i've walked like almost every inch of every major historical road and so i did Two and a half years ago, I did this big uh, mega walk in the peninsula, and it was sort of connecting a lot of uh, a lot of these paths that I'd walked before, but hadn't kind of walked them all together. And so the book came from that pop-up newsletter that I was writing on that walk. And so uh, you know, I do these newsletters which are time boxed, where it's like, hey, you have to sign up, you have to opt in, enthusiastic opt in. So I don't carry over email addresses for previous ones. So everyone opts in. And I, I send basically a little essay every day with photos and kind of what the day was about in terms of walking. So from that, I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to whack together this really quick book from this walk. This is what I thought basically two years ago. And I started another newsletter, which was the diary of working on this book, which was going to be 21 days and I was going to be done with the book. And uh, and so I started putting it together and started chopping up you know, these kind of essays that I'd done in the, the pop-up newsletter 
And after 21 days, it obviously wasn't done. It's been, I just said that the 200 and first, uh, um, email for that diary, which, you know, which is over the last two years I've been writing it. And so I kind of kept going, expanding the book and I kept working on it. I kept kind of fleshing it out making it richer. And so I had a few people that I was sending that draft off to about this book, things become other things. and. In the draft, you know, the original drafts had like six or seven characters. They're all, John was in it, this other guy, you know, from my, I wrote a novel a decade ago about burying my father. There are characters in, in there in it. I mean, it had stuff from North Carolina. It was just like such a weird mix of things. And I was just, I was trying to figure out, okay, where can I go with this? Because the walking was unlocking a lot of reflection. You know, it's like when I walk, I don't listen to music. I don't do podcasts. I don't have access to news or social media. And the whole point is to be, kind of like radically present, like hyper, hyper present, like where you're just bored out of your mind. And you, you know, you just start thinking and you start working through memories and it becomes like therapy and you're talking to people and then you start reflecting on this person in this small village in Japan, which might be depopulating, having kind of this incredible grace of life, even though economically things are kind of depressed. And then reflecting back on my hometown, you know, and like, why were we economically depressed and didn't, we didn't have grace of, you know, being taken care of by some greater whole. And so anyway, all this stuff, I was kind of throwing all the spaghetti at the wall in this book. And I had this one character, Brian, who kind of was like poking his nose out in a couple chapters. And one of my good readers who, who was the editor for this edition, actually, um, Ali Chance, Ali and I were doing a call. We were like talking about one of the early drafts and he was just like, Hey man, like, who is this Brian? And like, I just want to know more about this guy. And I kind of had this moment where I realized, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be the Brian book, I guess. Um, but so I had this really close friend all through elementary school, my best friend, as close as a friend as I'm, I'm adopted, only child adopted, no brothers. So this kid was my brother. And, um, basically when we graduated, he was murdered soon after we graduated and that I tried to process in the moment. I didn't have the skills to process it. And I actually spent, it was funny. I was looking back through my files and I had this, I had a whole folder that was named after the road he grew up on. He lived on. And I was trying to write these vignettes about our life, about our childhood. I was trying to, I was just trying to capture something when I was like 19, 20, 21, I you know, I had put that on hold for basically 20 years and Brian started to pop up in these drafts and Ollie was like, dude, Brian, what's going on? There's something really compelling about it. And I was like, yeah, I mean, th this is one of the most important people of my childhood, you know, if not the most important person in my childhood. And so I was like, okay, this is, <laughs> this is a scary thing for me to engage with because it is so emotionally pregnant and there's so much happening here. But I basically gutted that draft. I took out every other character. And I kind of rewrote it as a Brian book. So it's me walking and Brian, it's just us. And it's a reflection on that friendship. Um, and it's not meant, it's not, I hope it doesn't come off as sad or what, you know, it's, it's, it's not meant to be a sad reflection. It's meant to, it's meant to kind of elevate what we had, the memory of what we had. And this book is probably of all the walking writing I've done so far, it's definitely the most vulnerable. And I think it's the most honest in terms of what, what it feels like to be out on the road like that. You know, these are, th this is where your mind goes. 
Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. There's a degree to which walking is like a, a pursuit I aspire to but it's not something I necessarily associate with good literature. Sort of the same. I could say the same thing about like yoga where I'm like, ah, I bet I'd feel great if I did it. I don't really want to like read someone else's like yoga journey. I think if you just like cut the book in half and only did the walking parts and you weren't flashing back to you in other parts, I'm not sure it would be like as captivating. I guess I'm, I'm curious, like, how you found that balance between the two threads you you referenced that at one point there was like seven threads and now there are two threads how over time have you sort of thought about like how much to pack in one of these things yeah well i think the walking only example is just my last book kisa by kisa yeah right so that you know the last which is sold extraordinarily well you know we've sold over four thousand copies at a hundred dollars a book which is just bonkers yeah and you know and for people listening you like you basically make these books as sort of like a uh, like a personal passion when you say four thousand books those are like four thousand books you sent to the printer and like mailed from there more or less yeah well i mean they're look i have a long history of making books you know like i graduated from university and went straight into making books and it's always kind of been there even when i've done more digital stuff. It's always, the bookmaking has always been in the background. And so these books that I make, you know, they're printed and bound in Japan. 
you know, they're super high quality printing. We do silk screening, foil stamping, blind debossing on the covers. And I know from my experience in the industry that I'm not going to sell on my own 10,000 books. I'm not going to sell 20,000 books to my audience. You know, and I have a, I have a, a respectable audience and my membership program is incredible and it funds all of this research and all of this work. I couldn't do any of the, what I'm doing without my membership program. And so I've kind of realized over the years of making books that a hundred dollar book done super well, beautifully to the kind of the, the highest standards possible that you can sell a thousand copies of or a couple thousand copies of it. And it becomes profitable and sustainable because of that. And so when I made Kisa by Kisa, it came out in 2020, I made a thousand copies and I thought that was going to take, you know, maybe a year or two to sell. And it sold out in two days. Like I just completely underestimated where my audience was now. So we went back, we, we, we did another run and then I've subsequently worked with another printer and we've made, made it even better. We keep upgrading it. You know, we're on, we just did the fifth edition, which when this podcast comes out, will be available and it's two color silk screen on the cover. It just looks amazing. I work with, you know, illustrator friends. I, you know, everyone, I'm really lucky in that the editors, the proofers, the designers, the illustrators I have access to are all best of class. Like there is no publisher that could put me in contact with a better person. So it's funny, you know, it's like I, I do these books on my own, but I do them. And I, the thing that I come out with, I, I feel like no one, no pu- other publisher in the world could come to me and say, hey, we'll do this. We'll do what you're trying to do better, which is what what's interesting about this Things Become Other Things book is that I sold the hardcover rights to Random House. So my edition comes out November of 2023. That was because I was already in the process of making it when they contacted me to acquire it. And um, I was able to negotiate keeping my edition. And then we're going to do a significant kind of expansion and it won't have photos. So these books that I produce are sort of photo books that are matched with narrative nonfiction. And, you know, the photos and the, the text are kind of in conversation with one another. And, but I, you know, Random House doesn't do photo books. And um, I think there are interesting things you can do with like a, a trade hardcover, leaning into the, the black and whiteness of it all. Yeah. So I'm excited about this kind of weird collaboration with Random House, where it's like I get to do my edition. And then we get to do kind of a, a version of it for Random House in 18 months, which feels like a million years away, but I know will probably come up quickly. And it also like all of this, all of this stuff of, of collaborating with a big publisher is sort of something that I'd written off my ability to do because I got rejected so much. I just got, re- you know, I spent all of my thirties just getting rejected from everywhere, everyone, agent, every, I got no thumbs up. I only got thumbs up from literary uh, retreats and fellowships. So, you know, I was working on this book for like five years, six years and rejected by everyone, but it got me into University of Iowa's summer program. It got me into Tin House, uh, McDowell, VCCA, you know, so it was kind of interesting that it served that purpose. But anytime I talked to an agent in New York, they'd be like, oh, dude, you got to write the American in Japan book now. You got to write the guidebook first, you know, and and uh, I was like, no, I can't. I don't have that in me. That's not the kind of book I want to do. Can we drill into the uh, failure a little bit? I feel like failure sure. is a good topic to talk Love about. It. So like there's a certain like stubbornness to how you approach a lot of this stuff. I feel like where a certain person who's like, man, I really want to like write a book for a 
a major publisher and they're basically telling me the book they want me to write would be like, you know what? I'm just going to write that book. I'll try and get a little of what I want into that book or like I'll get them next time. And you've been like very, very clear about like what you want to do and what kind of work you want to make from the content of the books to the presentation to the printing style really like control at like every like level of the publishing uh, game but i i know i've known you over the years also to be like i really wanted to publish like this novel i've been working on or like i i would like to publish a book in a more traditional manner what was it like when that stubbornness butted up against sort of other people's ideas of what a book should be and the demands? And, and how have you found middle ground there now that you are sort of publishing um, within the, the traditional publishing world? I mean, first of all, I don't know if what I've done is 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 the most efficient or correct way to do it. It's like, you know, look, I, I, I can look back at my life and there's a lot of inefficiencies. And a lot of it is just ignorance. That stubbornness is, is really just ignorance. And maybe it would have been a good idea to just compromise and write some goofy Japan book. And that would have started a relationship with the publisher. Who knows? I don't know. But what, what, I, what I've always done and and this is also part of the reason why Japan became my home is that the cost of living here is so low that I've never felt financially dependent on compromising. Yeah. So I've never felt like, oh God, I really have to get this book published by Penguin or whatever. And so I've got to, I've got to do this because I need the advance because I, otherwise I can't pay my rent or that. Like cost of living in Japan is, you know, all throughout my twenties was basically, I needed $15,000 a year and I covered all of my rent, all of my food utilities, everything was taken care. It's like, it's just an incredibly low cost of living. And so I think in my twenties, I built up this muscle where I was just like, okay, keep costs low, keep, keep fixed costs low. And, and that allows you to kind of focus on whatever you feel most passionate about, just whatever you're drawn to, you know, the, the, the topics, the stories, the way that the, the form of the stories, whatever. And I think I just kept that going in my thirties. And I thought, I honestly thought it was going to be easier to get my novel published. I really did. I was kind of like, oh, this will be not too bad. I'll do a couple drafts, boom, boom, boom. You know, and like it wasn't really hubris so much. It was just like, I just can't imagine it being that difficult. Like I, I feel like I had had a certain amount of success in nonfiction stuff. And I had this book that to me felt compelling. And I was just like, well, you know, like, look, we'll get it out. And it just it just didn't have. I mean, it was like, it was so painful. I mean, some of the most depressing, darkest nights of the last decade, I mean, thankfully, I haven't been banging my head against this wall too much recently, have been, you know, those rejection notes. You know, I've gotten dozen, I mean, I've got, I don't even know how, 50, 100 rejections from people, you know, and um, I've had agents that have basically been like, okay, yeah, I think you can do it. And like, have kind of like worked with me for years. And then in the end, we're like, nope, I don't think you can do it. And you're just like, oh my God, like, what, what do I have to do? Cause you know, you, you look at what is being published and you go, okay, I know that this is better than that. There's like kind of this almost gaslighting, you know, psychosis that begins to happen. And I mean, for me, not getting the novel published was probably a good thing because I could do a much better job with it now. In fact, I'd I'd like to go back to it at some point, do like a, a one month kind of revisiting, like re, revisit the novel retreat and just kind of dig in and see, see what I can extract from it. But the kind of 
stubbornness, I guess, of like, okay, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to push forward because I feel drawn to some of these stories that like these kind of stranger stories that I was encountering in my life. And so in 2018, like right after we last spoke, actually, I was in the middle of trying to, of pitching a big thing to the Atlantic and it was going to be this big walking piece about Japan. And it was about Yamagata and Dewa Sanzan and, and Yamabushi and all this stuff. And I was working with this editor and I worked on it for like a year and I just ended up getting completely ghosted by this guy and rejected. And that was so painful and traumatic. And I felt, you know, I come from a place where there is no status. No one, no one from the town I grew up in has status. We have no intellectual status. We have no economic status, really even no historical status, right? It's kind of like one of these American towns that, that kind of doesn't have much of a history to it. And so, you know, I felt very much like I needed a, that third party knighting to happen from the Atlantic or from a big five publisher or whatever. And I really, that was, that was a handcuff that, that I was kind of struggling with all through my thirties. And, um, it finally got to a point with that Atlantic piece, not, not making it through where I was like, you know what? I need to just go to New York and work in a magazine. I need to go work in the industry. I just clearly don't know what I'm doing. And I went, I talked to a bunch of editors. I probably talked to, I definitely talked to you at that time. And everyone kind of said like, look, you have, you have your audience. Try doing the membership program. Everyone, if you go to work at a magazine, everyone that you're sitting next to in that magazine actually wants to be doing, be in the position that you're in, where you have an audience and you have this editorial independence and da da da. And so that was what kind of catalyzed launching the membership program. It wasn't like, oh, I really want to do this membership program. It was, I feel so crushed and hopeless that I'm willing to leave Japan to go basically apprentice at a magazine to learn what I'm supposed to do because I clearly don't know how to do it. And everyone told me not to do that. And so I started the membership program and that wasn't easy. And it felt like a failure launching that program because it didn't do that well off the starting blocks. Uh, but, you know, a few months in, I'd kind of lean into it, leaned into what it was and the fact that I was going to really have to fight tooth and nail for every member. And I started to draw permission from it that I was looking for from these bigger entities from the industry. I started to draw this kind of diffuse permission from all the members. And that enabled me to do that first mega walk, 40 days, Tokyo to Kyoto, beyond, touching the peninsula, writing about it. I had a big piece for Wired come out from that. I had a big piece from Eater come out from that. All of that sort of catalyzed the Kisa by Kisa book. It's like these things started to build on themselves, but it was I really needed that sense of permission because doing it all on my own felt overly solipsistic or whatever, neurotic. It just didn't, it didn't feel formal enough. I was like, I need someone to tell me it's okay to do this. Like someone, please just say, Craig, yes, we want you to go do this. And um, the membership program enabled that kind of miraculously, which was not what I expected when I launched it. And then from that, it's just it's just been going forward for the last five years. I uh, when I was um, growing up, my dad read a lot of um, this is like a genre that doesn't really exist anymore. Maybe this genre got like slightly canceled, but like uh, like travel books, like a lot of um, like yeah. Pico Ayer books. Oh, sure. Bruce Chatwin. Yeah, yeah. Which were very formative on me and like I have very positive memories of them. But a lot of times like in a Pico Iyer book, you know, he goes to some town and he has like mm -hmm. 
kind of a wacky encounter and it leads to some other thing. And it's almost like a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where like a few strands start opening up and then they like culminate the very form of walking, like going to different places each day almost ensures that you will not have a Pico I year like experience for you, like knowing that you're not going to stay anywhere. You're probably not going to like form like deeper relationships with people because you're getting up in the morning and going like, what do you pay attention to? Like while you're like having dinner, like what, what is like, what is the focus of your laser beam when you're trying to capture this experience that you're going to write about? What are you, what are you paying attention to day to day? Well, uh, first of all, like Pico was a, a big influence on me too in my, in my teens and twenties. Yeah. And I know Pico, I've met him and he's lovely. I mean, he's the sweetest human, you know, he's wonderful. But Pico's whole thing is to not really understand what's happening. Like he's never learned Japanese, right? So like his, his whole thing is like, I don't, I want to go into these, into these environments and kind of be a, you know, be a child kind yeah. of just whatever, like doing, doing whatever his thing is. Whereas like for me, I, I don't want to do that. And in fact, I only f- like, I'm putting this book out now after having spent a decade and walked a lot of these routes, a lot of the routes that are in the book, you know, five, 10, 15 times and, you know, thousands of kilometers of uh, shoe rubber across the peninsula. And for me, actually, I have every day on a walk, some kind of almost transcendent experience. Mm -hmm. Like I actually think there are, uh, there are quite a lot of themes that kind of come together that you start noticing repetition, even if you aren't staying in the same place every day. Yeah. And also, um, the villages almost like repeat themselves. So even though I'm, I'm moving linearly, it can almost like be walking in a loop sometimes, but I just finished uh, a six day, 150 kilometer Tokyo walk yesterday. And I leave on these things and I always think, oh my God, what am I going to have to write about? What's going to be out there? And every day without fail, there is something to be delighted by. There's something to be, to feel transcendent with. There's something where you come out of the interaction changed, however slightly, like every single day. And so I think what the walks have taught me and doing the pop-up newsletters with the walks in tandem with the walks, having you know, the, the, this, it's a super ascetic practice, what yep. I'm doing. Like, it's really, it's insane. You know, it's like I'm walking 30, 35, 40, 45 kilometers a day, and I'm writing 2,000 words every night, 3,000 words every night. I'm, ed- I'm importing all the photos. I'm editing them. I'm importing video a lot of times. I'm editing the video. I'm uploading it all. I'm publishing the, you know, editing the essay, publishing it to, to the people who are subscribed to the newsletter. It's crazy. So I'll walk eight hours a day, and then I'll do five, six hours of work at night at the inn, and then I go to bed, and then I do that over and over and over and over again. So the Tokyo walk I just finished too, it was like that. You know, I was doing two, 3,000 words a night, 22, 23 kilometers a day, you know, but but what you learn not having music on, not having podcasts on, not having social media, not reading the news, is that there are things to be delighted by. There are people to, to whose stories are engaging and incredible that you're passing by every single day. And when you feel the permission I feel by the membership, it becomes my job to pay even closer attention. This is what I mean by it's like it's so difficult to do these things if you're if you're if it's completely self-generated. Um and so it, you know, like could 
Carl Uv Nausgaard have written his books if he didn't have that editor that he was like calling every night, reading what he wrote that day to? You know, if he had just been in a in a hut on his own writing, trying to write these insane auto fictions about his his uh, his life, um, I, I'm not sure. I think we all we all need someone to kind of bestow a little bit of permission, or for us to be take a little bit of permission from something. And so, for me, the attention component is just part of the aesthetic practice. And like you, you know, in Tokyo, there'll be days where you know when I'm doing last week when I was doing the walk, and I'll just be like, I don't know what is going to move me today. And then out of the blue, there'll be this small interaction that when you really pay attention to it, it contains kind of this universe of kindness and patience uh, that you otherwise pass by or ignore if you're kind of in in the general mode of looking at things. And then being able to, to take that experience and try to transmute it into an essay for the evening and send it out. That as part of the practice too, just develops your eye. You know, you just start being able to look more and more and more closely at things. So f- for me, this book, Things Become Other Things, is meant to be kind of almost like apotheotic of like that attention, of like paying attention, of like all these interactions, all these people. Hopefully, the feeling is that we come away and they're elevated, um, that, you know, being part of this book is, is an elevating experience for those that are involved. That's the hope. That's the, the position I'm writing from and, and looking from. So... You describe this kind of uh, aesthetic practice, which just could stretch like till infinity. But um, coming to this point where you've written this book about the walking experience, you've found a publisher to push it out to a wider audience. Do you start thinking about doing something different, like a different practice? Or do you want to like come back and like um, new walk, just like uh, nothing happened? keep it going. Well, I'm I'm really curious to see how this random house experience is going to go and like I'd love to talk again in 18 months <laughs> on, the, on the eve of of the hardcover publication. But no, I mean, look, right now Kisa by Kisa's success unlocked for me uh the notion that I was being given the permission to kind of do this 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 kind of work. As much as I say that I like don't need these kind of external people to, to, to validate me. And I really don't, I don't feel like, Oh great. I made it. But what is great is being able to say to people, I have a book coming up with random house and seeing them, them shift from, Oh, this guy, it's the same thing when I write for the New York times, you know, it's like, it shifts from, Oh, this is a guy who writes newsletters to a New York times reporter or, Oh, it's a guy. It's a, it's a, it's a random house published author. It's like that for better, or for worse shifts your relationships with people. And I'm, I'm mainly, excited about that simply in, in using it to open more doors to keep doing exactly what I'm doing at a deeper level and maybe with hopefully more, more reach essentially. So yeah, I don't end. There's just so many more things I want to walk. There's so <laughs> many more places I need to walk. Like I, like I want to be, I want to go to the Dolomites. I mean, it's not just Japan, right? I'm going to Thailand in a few weeks to walk with Kevin Kelly. You know, we do these walks together and you, you came on one and a half of them. <laughs> what I what I've realized is, for me, I don't judge my success based on whatever what's in the bank account, blah blah blah. How many books are being sold? Yeah, I'm I'm collecting incredible people, and are they close by? Am I spending how much how much time am I spending a year with these incredible people? And Kevin falls into that bucket, and the people that come on these walks that we invite also fall into that bucket. 
And I just feel really lucky to be able to do these things. And it's just, it's such a great platform to spend a week with, with folks that are operating at such a high level and to have these, you know, intimate conversations and, and deep dinner conversations and stuff like that. So walking still got a lot of legs left in it. I'm not ready to, not ready to hang up the walking shoes yet. I mean, it's interesting that, um, you became friends with Kevin Kelly because, uh, in some ways you're sort of living out his prediction about, uh, was it the, the 10,000, <laughs> 1,000 true fans or the 10,000 true yeah. fans? 1,000. 1, well, I wish you, it was 10,000. You've exceeded, you've exceeded, uh, the, that, um, amount, but you know, uh, one of the things about that sort of prediction about what the internet would do to people doing creative work is like, it's new enough that we haven't really seen it like projected out over decades over the course of yeah. years. Like it, it's similar to podcasting where it feels ubiquitous, but actually like it's only been in your life for maybe a decade for most people. Right. And right. I'm interested to see what will happen with those relationships over time, because we've we've had examples through history of people who had relationship with writers over time where it was, I'm just going to buy everything this person does for the rest of my life. Um, yep. What you're doing has similarities to that, but like it's a, a much higher frequency and it's a much, much more direct connection than just like seeing the thing at the like book stand table when it comes out every five years or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious to see what these things look like in 10 years, for sure. I can't believe this is already year five. You know, we're wrapping year five at the end of January. And um, I'm not being hyperbolic when I say it's it's completely changed my life. As a writer, I'm working at a, a higher level than I've ever worked at before. As a photographer, I'm looking at the world at a level I've never achieved before. But um, whenever someone asks me, should I do a membership program? What should I do? Da, da, da. I always say, don't do it. It's terrible. <laughs> It's terrible. It's the worst. There's no um, backstop. It is so much work. And chances are you can make a lot more money a lot easier doing almost anything else. You know, it can be really grueling and 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 sort of just stressful. You know, I'm I'm I feel really grateful now to be at a, a position where I don't look at the numbers ever. I don't look at the membership numbers. It once it crossed a certain number of members, I stopped looking ever. I, the only time I ever look at what, what's happened with the membership program is on when I'm doing my tax returns. Because once it crossed the sustainability line that paid for, you know, equipment and my studio and, you know, whatever, I just didn't want to think about it anymore. I just wanted to focus on the walks, getting better as a writer, doing better, you know, just better newsletters, putting out better books, you know, all that stuff. And so that's kind of, and I explain it when I do my year end roundups, I'm always saying like, look, the purpose of all of this, all of this work, the membership program is to produce books. That's it. That is the, the whole point of all of it. And I think that's really important. The newsletters, the pop-ups, they're all drafts for books that to me, like you're saying, people engage with stuff a minute here, a minute there, you know, over the course of 10 years, it's kind of scattered, but to take that properly kind of distill it into book form properly edit it. And, you know, that, that takes so much work to do well. Um, you know, things become other things. Two and a half years ago, I, I did the pop-up newsletter. It took two and a half years to get the book, to get that pop-up newsletter into book form, into, into proper, rigorously edited, line edited, copy edited, proofed book form. It's an insane amount of work, but no, you know, you can go back and read the draft of that, of the pop-up newsletter if you're, if you're a member, but 
this book, I think, has the ability to reach a hundred times more people, a thousand times more people than that newsletter ever did. Final question. Go um, for it. I had uh, Hua Xu on the show. He also wrote a book about his uh, teenage uh, college friend uh, being murdered. Weird echo with what your book is about. And he said something very similar about like, you know, I was taking notes on this immediately. I knew it was important in my life, but it wasn't until like 20 years later that I was ready as a writer to write about it. For you, with the topics in this book, Brian, your friend, adoption, what was it that told you that you were like that this was the time to write about it? Like, what was the signal in yourself that like, oh, th this is my time to do this with my work? Well, I don't think it's a it's a it's a coincidence that a bunch of uh, dudes who are in their early 40s now are reflecting, <laughs> you know, on their teenage years. It's either I that mean, or buy a Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, for me, uh, therapy was a huge, oh, huge part. Not, and you know, it wasn't like we had this goal with therapy to like get me to, to a place where I can write about this or whatever. But um, through the act of, you know, I've been doing therapy now for five and a half years. So I started pretty soon after we recorded the last episode and I um, consider this free therapy for all guests. <laughs> and if it gets you on the path, go for it. Yeah, no, please. Yeah. If you haven't done therapy, you know, and you could find, find a good therapist, it, it really is life-changing, but I've, I committed to that pretty rigorously, um, where I've done at least weekly over the last five and a half years, um, sometimes two, three times a week during certain intense periods. And, um, even on my big, big, big walks, I was still doing therapy during the like Tokyo to Kyoto walk. I remember, I remember exactly where I was doing the calls, what hotel, what corner of the, of the room I was in. Um, but I think that working with my therapist on a whole host of other things in my life, you know, relationship stuff and reflecting on whatever, just patterns and, you know, trying to sort of unravel toxicity that, you know, you sort of, you know, embed in your life or self-sabotage, whatever, all that stuff. Um, I think through the radical honesty that I found talking with my dude, and I felt that immediately, like just a kindred spirit. And he, you know, he's a listener in a way that no one else in my life had ever been a listener. And I think when people say, oh, I have a friend I can talk to, it's, it's not the same. And in fact, the rigor, it's like, it's like yoga. If you do yoga once a month, it kind of doesn't do anything for you. It's sort of pointless to do yoga once a month. It's when you do yoga two, three times a week. That your body begins to change, your mind begins to change, you begin to like smell different. It's like it, that, that's when the real transformations start to happen. And the same thing with therapy, it's that weekly rigor of coming to it with a duty to not bullshit it and to be fully present and attentive. I mean, there's a lot of overlap between my walking asceticism and, and sort of what I bring to something like therapy. A lot of people talk about therapy as being stressful or you leave and you're depressed or what. Like for me, most of the times I finish a session and I feel like I'm a better person by a micron or two. And it's the same way I feel on the walks. And I think actually therapy and the walking um, have provided archetypes of internal feelings, like internal metrics, uh, temperature checks of like, am I moving in the right direction or not? So I think writing about Brian was in some ways a corollary of just four years of rigorous self introspection about who I was and where I came from and and maybe thinking finally because it really like it's just a scary thing to to talk about this you know, to write about this kid because I just want to do him justice 
And I think finally I found a kind of kindness and patience and peace in my life that allowed me to visit that story, to go back to that story with the kind of kindness and patience I wish we had had when we were kids, but we didn't. Thank you for that. I'm going to um, send this clip when we pitch advertisers for online therapy stuff. That was a perfect, <laughs> perfect chill. Uh, and thank you so much for this interview, Craig. Thank you. And that's the long form podcast. Thanks very much to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor on this episode, Jackie Sajiko. Thanks to Susan Peterson for doing the show notes. Thanks to everyone over at Vox Media who help us produce this show. We should be back with a new episode real soon. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Vanta. Dealing with loads of spreadsheets, juggling different tools, and having to do manual security checks, it can be a headache to keep up with today's compliance and security programs. Vanta is the trust management platform that wants to simplify things and bring all your trust-building efforts under one roof, making growth smoother for your whole organization. Vanta lets you automate up to 90% of compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Strengthen security posture and reduce third-party risk. Get $1,000 off Vanta when you go to vanta.com slash vox. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash vox for $1,000 off Vanta.